All right, amen, amen. Always excited to have a vacation Bible school right around the corner. Summertime is full and eventful, but uh, such, such great ministry that goes on in the summer. I want to encourage you, if you haven't been up here during a week of vacation Bible school in a while, it'd be a great time for you to show up. Um, even if you don't have time to, to commit to help every day or whatever like that, just show up. Just love on the kids. Just see what's going on. Uh, some amazing things that we uh, are able to see God do through that week. And uh, so many children are going to hear the gospel and get loved on, and we're excited about that. And all the other things that are going on this summer, obviously, as Rhett mentioned earlier, please be sure to check those out and how you can continue to partner with us in any way possible. Uh, having said that, let's open our Bibles to the book of Ch- uh, Acts chapter 15. And we're going we're gonna to basically finish up uh, the last portion of the book of Acts 15 and go into the first couple of verses in chapter 16. And uh, as I began to look at this passage and, and really put these, these sections together, God brought one consistent theme uh, to my heart and my mind as I was doing my preparation, and that's this, that there's the messy yet rewarding work of discipleship. And uh, we just see the early church from the very beginning committed to discipleship. We see Paul and Barnabas intentionally investing and pouring into people, spending time with them. We know discipleship is a relationship that takes time. Um, and we're going to look more at that a little bit more uh, later as we look at this passage. But discipleship, because it involves people, is often messy. Because we're what? We're messy. I like the vacation Bible school uh, theme, life is wild sometimes, Right? Um, but God is good, and so uh, there is great reward in this uh, investment that we make in people, however messy it may be, and uh, that's what discipleship is truly all about. And so what I want to do is this, uh, let's pick up in uh, chapter 15. I'm going to read the end of 15, starting in verse 36, and carry on into chapter 16, and so you can just follow along with me there. And uh, I am reading from the ESV version of the Bible. Some of you have asked me that many times, and, and I do. I primarily preach from the, Ameri- the English Standard Version of the Scriptures. But we'll pick up here in 1536. It says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and let's see how they are. So he has such a heart for the people. They want to go back and check on the churches that they planted. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Now, this is Mark who wrote uh, the Gospel of Mark. And, and so Barnabas, and, and he showed up a little bit earlier in the story. We'll talk more about that later. But Barnabas wanted to bring Mark along, okay? And look at what it says. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Paul remembered what Mark had done to them earlier. And there arose a sharp disagreement. Don't you love how the scriptures uh, paint that picture? There was a sharp disagreement. Let me tell you something. They had a fight. There's no, no other ifs, ands, and buts about it. These, these two brothers had a fight about Mark. They had a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him. They sailed to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And they went to Syria, Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Now, verse 1 in chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And a, a disciple was there named Timothy. Oh, now we're introduced to another young man named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him. He circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Now let me say a quick brief 
sidebar about this. Remember, the Jerusalem Council spent so much time because there were really two major issues at hand. Number one, there was this group called the Circumcision Party, and they were teaching a false gospel. They were saying that in order to be saved, you must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. And that's where Paul and Barnabas opposed them. They had another knockdown, drag out uh, in Antioch about this issue. They took it to Jerusalem, and there, there at the Jerusalem Council, it was very clear that uh, the Peter and the apostles uh, opposed this false teaching. They said salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, there's one God for all. He shows no partiality. All may be saved by grace through faith. You don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. However, uh, we talked a lot about this understanding about how do we live in wisdom uh, and, and with good conscience and uh, not being a stumbling block to brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, you know, there, were, there was a very, a very difficult dynamic in play because you had these Greeks who were coming out of this pagan background and then you had the Jews who were still living according to the law of Moses and live, living according to their customs and their traditions. And there was nothing wrong with that, but they were trying to figure out how do we all fit and how do we make this thing work. And basically the bottom line was this, is that if you're doing anything uh, under the law of liberty, which God gives us freedom in Jesus Christ, right? Freedom not to sin, but freedom not to sin, right? We don't, we don't have freedom just to go and live however we want to, but God gives us freedom to live righteous lives in Christ. But if there's anything in our lives that we're doing freely under the grace of God that begins to offend a brother or sister in Christ, the law of love, our love for that brother and sister of Christ, it supersedes our law of liberty. And that's really what the whole Jerusalem Council was about is that if you're doing anything that you may be free to do in, in good conscience, but if it begins to offend a brother or cause another brother or sister in Christ to stumble, this had a lot to do with the sexual immorality, the dietary laws, some of the Greek uh, pagan customs and things like that that many of the Gentiles were saved out of. And so it was like you got to have wisdom to know how to live in different contexts and around different people. And so here we get to Paul and Timothy, remember, and they said you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. And then Paul finds Timothy, whose mother was a Jew, but his father was a Gentile, so he had not been circumcised. And what's Paul do? He has him circumcised. But let me tell you something. He didn't force Timothy to be, be circumcised. And the reason that he asked Timothy to be circumcised is because he knew that if he, if he wasn't circumcised, Timothy would not have an inroad with the Jewish people. And so it, it was Timothy's own decision to freely say, okay, I will go through this unbelievably painful process as an adult just for the sake of the gospel so that I can go with you, Paul, wherever you go, and there, I won't be an offense to any of my other brothers and sisters, especially my Jewish brothers and sisters, right? And so that, that's what this whole thing is all about. So I wanted to make sure there was some clarity on that. As some of you may have gotten a little bit of a mixed message knowing that we just talked about that a few weeks ago. Now look at what it says in verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go through Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Okay, so passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, when I think about this passage of Scripture, a couple of things begin to come to mind. Everybody in this room, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you've been walking with the Lord for any number of years or any extended period of time, everybody in this room, I would dare say, has someone or a number of people 
in your life that has invested in you spiritually? Think about them right now. It could have been a grandparent. Maybe you didn't grow up in a believing home. Maybe it was a neighbor or a friend. Maybe it was a youth pastor or a pastor. Maybe it was your mom or dad. Maybe it's somebody in this church who, as you've committed your life to Christ and joined this fellowship, somebody came alongside you along the way and, and, and helped lead you and invest in you and, and, and trained you and discipled you. You see, none of us arrive and none of us ever really get to the point that we are as, uh, by ourselves as Christians, do we? We all have people who mean so much to us and have invested in us spiritually. As I begin to look at this message in this passage, there are obviously many people that came to my mind, and it really starts all the way back in my childhood, that I did have believing parents that they really did give me a foundation, and they were perfect by no means, and we had our seasons where we were in and out of church and all that kind of stuff. But let me tell you something. Uh, they probably, of course, my mom's gone on to be with the Lord. My dad is still with us. And they probably didn't think they did a good enough job. As most of us parents, you know, we look at ourselves as our kids grow up, and we're like, man, did I do enough, and have I, have I given them enough? And they probably feel that way. But I tell you, they did give me a foundation. They did introduce me to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they did teach me how to think for myself. And they did so many things in my life that I wouldn't be the man that I am today without them. And then I think about even later as my wife came alongside me at a young age and thank God we're both believers and that was something we both were looking for in a mate and a spouse. And, and so uh, God gave me a believing wife and then, of course, we've, we've had our own children and had the, the, the challenge. I mean, especially since I came to ministry, uh, you, you think that the pastor is like the super dad at home that does everything right and has, you know, all these spiritual Bible studies at their house. And, you know, we're seeing visions in the living room and, and singing all these wonderful praise hymns every single night. I just want to be honest with you guys. That's just not always our experience. And more than likely, it's, it hasn't been our experience uh, for the majority of the time because it is a challenge. It's, 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 it's funny how a pastor, many times, it's, it's easier for me to minister to you guys than it is to minister to my own family. I don't know why that is, but, but I think a lot of pastors would, would share that same sentiment, that it's just it's some, there's an there's a extra challenge involved to be a godly husband, to lead your wife and to lead your children and to be faithful in that. And, and again, looking back, I'm sure that I always look at ways that I could have done more. But, but there were some men that God used in my life leading up to my call in the ministry and leading up to the, really the new season of our whole family. Our direction of our family changed completely uh, back around 2008 when we were, we were part of a church, it was a gospel preaching church, and there was a lot of good things that God was doing there. But one of the things this church did really well is that they, they, they did discipleship well. And they, did, they had a lot of strong men in the church. And these men, there were some men who intentionally invested in me. I don't know if they saw anything in me that was promising or whatever it may be. I don't know. But all I know is that they took their time. And they invested in me. And that was really what allowed me and led me to the point to where I recognized that God was calling me into uh, vocational ministry. And, and so that was that whole process of these people that spent time to invest in me. It took years, but God finally got me to the place where I surrendered my life to the ministry. And now, of course, here I am, 2000. That's been uh, over 10 years ago. And so when I look at this passage of Scripture, I want you to begin to think two things. Who are the people that have invested in you spiritually? If they're still here, if they're still with us today, something you might want to do is pick up the phone and maybe what? Call them and thank them. And, and tell them what they've done and what they've meant to you. 
But the other question I want to ask, and we'll get all the way around this to the, to the end of the message, is that who are you investing in? Who are you pouring your life into? Okay, and that's where we're going with this passage of Scripture. And I'm so thankful here that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat the truth of this message. The first thing that I see in this passage as we read the end of chapter 15, we see Barnabas, we see Paul, we see this big, sharp disagreement, this fight that they had over John Mark. The first thing I would share with you this morning is this, is that we may not always personally agree on the decisions and details in ministry, or we could just say life, right? The details and decisions in life. But we can trust God that he is always working his greater plan. Okay, I love the fact that the Bible doesn't try to cover up the the personal character flaws of the apostles in the early church. I love this fact that when we read about Peter in the Gospels, we see how he was many times overbearing and many times he stepped on uh, stepped out uh, a little bit prematurely where he probably needed to remain quiet or he had to stick his foot in his mouth many times. And then we see how Peter even went to the point of denying his own Lord and Savior Jesus Christ three times as he was arrested and taken into custody, into trial. And, and we see, you know, the, the, the Scriptures, they could have covered that stuff up and made Peter to look like this super Christian guy who never did anything wrong but that's not what the Gospels do. And that's one of the reasons why we trust in the validity, the historical accuracy of the Scriptures, because even the own people who are writing about themselves sometimes, they don't even paint themselves in a perfect light. And that's what we would find in a true historical narrative. If this is true history, we knew we would know that these men and women, sometimes they just didn't get it right. They had disagreements. They had falling outs. They had sharp fights and, and, and bitter conflicts and all of these kind of things. And many times they failed. Look at King David. How many times do we read the Old Testament about our, the Old Testament patriarchs who failed God repeatedly? And I like that about the Scriptures because that's me. That's you. That's who we are, right? We're sinners. We're fail- we, we fail. We struggle. We, we don't always get it right. And so it's a beautiful picture here that, that we don't always agree on, on the, major de- on the, the uh, specific decisions and all the details that happens in life or in ministry when it comes to our church family. But we can trust this one thing, that no matter what happens, God is always taking it and he is using it and working it out for his greater purpose and his greater plan. And so you see Paul and Barnabas, and I think Paul and Barnabas had grown so close together. They were probably like brothers at this point. Remember, they'd already been on the first missionary journey together. Think about what Barnabas did for Paul. When Paul first was converted and came to Christ, what, what did the rest of the church do? They ran from him. They didn't trust him because he was the persecutor of the church. And they were just saying, no, he's just trying to do something here to, to pretend like he's a Christian so that he can come and secretly, you know, persecute us and take us to prison or, or whatever it may be. And so many of the early church, most of the early church did not trust the Apostle Paul except one man. What was his name? Old Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And he came and he vouched for Paul. And he said, you know what, guys, you may not trust this man, but I've seen what he's preaching. I see that he has been willing to uh, renounce everything that he once uh, believed in and trusted in. He is a follower of Jesus Christ. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's unashamed about the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he vouched for Paul early on. And that was big for Paul. So he was like a brother to him. And then later, many years later, when the church at Antioch was born and there were Gentile believers coming into the church, Barnabas was like, man, something amazing is happening here in the church at Antioch. We need just the right leader who can, who can figure out this complicated dynamic between the Jews and the Gentiles. And guess who Barnabas thought of? He said, I know just the guy. That's Paul. 
And he goes and he seeks Paul. I think he finds him in Tarsus. And he brings him to Antioch. And he said, you know what? You're the guy that's going to lead this church. And eventually, of course, they began this missionary movement together. So these were very close brothers. I mean, they were pretty much inseparable for years. And all of a sudden, there's a person that comes in between them and it drives them apart. They have a sharp and a bitter disagreement. Now, we know from what we've read earlier in the book of Acts, what happened is is that Paul and Barnabas had given Mark a shot earlier to come with them on their first missionary journey. And when things got really tough, remember, they were facing danger. They were oftentimes put in positions of persecution. And I think that it was probably just a little bit too much for Mark. John Mark was overwhelmed with what he was seeing and what was was going on in in their missionary journey. And so what? He, he, He abandoned them. He left. He cut out. He said, guys, I can't do it anymore. I'm going home. And we've all been there. We've probably all either been that person who said, I can't take it anymore, I've just got to go back home. Or we've been the one who was abandoned and who was left in a very difficult situation. And so Paul had been deeply hurt and had been deeply offended by Mark's abandonment. And Paul needed to know that whoever he took with him on this next missionary journey, he said, I need to know that this guy can be trusted. And so Paul's memory was very short, and he said, you know what, Mark, you left us the first time. I'm not so sure you're not going to leave us again, so I can't trust you right now. So no, I'm not taking Mark. Well, Barnabas was just a little bit different. He's the son of encouragement. And he says, man, Paul, don't you know that everybody deserves a second chance? And let's just be honest, guys, we do. I mean, we're all going to get it wrong. We're all going to mess up and fail. We're all going to struggle at times especially early on in our Christian life, and even later. And Barnabas is that guy that that, that sees Mark and he says, you know what, I know what he did, but you know what, I'm willing to put myself out there. I'm willing to risk whatever it may be because I really think Mark's ready this time. I really think he deserves another chance. And so Barnabas vouches for Mark, just like he vouched for Paul earlier. And Paul said, I'm sorry, man, but I just can't do it. And so Paul grabs Silas. And we're introduced to Silas now. Paul's now investing in Silas. And now Barnabas takes Mark and they they go what? They go separate ways. Now we may look at this and we may say, well, you know, this disagreement, this this division was, was not a good thing. But I think if you look at it from God's perspective, you see all of a sudden, instead of us looking like this was a, a, a division of efforts, I look at it more as a, a multiplication of efforts. Because whereas we now had Paul and Barnabas who may have taken one person along with them, now all of a sudden you've got two groups that are going out onto the missionary field. Instead of one young man being invested in by these two men, now you have two young men who are being invested in and discipled by these spiritual heroes of the faith. And so God takes this and says, no, this is not a splitting up. This is not a loss. This is not a division of the missionary work or my ministry effort. All of a sudden, this is a multiplication of it. And so we're seeing this, that God is always working his greater plan and his bigger picture, and it is always in play, even when we fail to recognize it, even if they were right or wrong. This isn't about who was right or wrong. It doesn't really matter in the end. Is that God took something that was an apparent loss or an apparent conflict, and he made something beautiful out of it. He made something powerful out of it. And that's the way our God always works and operates. Because here's, here, here it is at the end of the day. It's about the kingdom of God. Do I want to see Christ's church grow? Yes. You should want to see the seats next to you filled. 
with hungry people who want to know the Lord Jesus Christ and serve Him faithfully and make a difference in this community. We should desire that, and we should be doing things in our lives to help make that happen. But I want to tell you this. Regardless of whether Christ church begins to grow significantly or not, what I want to see more than anything is the kingdom of God to grow. That's what I want to see. And so, like, if you go out into your respective circles of influence and maybe you work downtown or maybe you work out east and maybe you, you're going to minister to people who maybe it's not practical for them to come back here to Christ Church. You know what? Witness to them anyway. Share the gospel with them anyway because we're not as, as concerned about the growth of Christ Church as we are the growth of the kingdom of God. And that's what this is all about. That's what this is all about. And so we understand that, and I think that's what you have to see right here with Paul and with Barnabas is that, you know what, the kingdom of God is going to be that much more blessed because now we have two different groups going out to share the gospel wherever they go. But the last thing I want you to see about this is something that you may not know until you keep reading and you get into Paul's epistles. You see, the very last epistle Paul wrote was the book of 2 Timothy. And we're going to be introduced to Timothy. We were here in just a second. But he's writing to Timothy. He is under arrest in Rome just before Paul was beheaded under the cruel rule of Emperor Nero in the Roman Empire. He wrote his very last letter to Timothy. And you know what was one of the most beautiful pictures in all the Bible is that the last time that Paul mentions anything about Mark is right here in Acts chapter 15 where he says, you know what, I don't trust this man. I, don't, I, can't, I can't go into ministry with him right now. But if you keep reading all the way into 2 Timothy, listen to what Paul says about his young brother. He's writing to Timothy. He says, do your best to come to me soon. He says, Demas, who's in love with this present world, he's deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. But listen to what he says. He's writing to Timothy. And you know what he says? He says, get Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Isn't that amazing how God, you know, I don't know how long it took for Paul and Mark to be reconciled, but somewhere along the way, God brought them back together. And he mended their relationship and he reconciled their partnership. And, and by the time that Paul was about to die and writing his very last book, his very last letter to Timothy, he mentions Mark and he's saying, that young man is useful to me in ministry. Isn't that good news? Why? Because what we may see as a temporary disagreement or dispute, God is always working to bring everything back together. And if we'll allow him to do that, he will. And obviously Paul and Mark were humble enough, wherever, however, however it worked out and whenever it happened, they both were humble enough to be reconciled and to forgive one another. And by the time Paul died, they were much closer brothers than ever before. What a beautiful picture and testimony of God's grace. Number two, biblical discipleship involves a vital and intentional partnership between both the family and the local church. Biblical discipleship involves a vital and intentional partnership between both the family and the local church. In Acts chapter 16... Uh, Paul and Silas now are coming to Derby, and they go to Derby and they go to Lystra and there's a disciple there named Timothy. Now Timothy for some reason had gotten the attention of the church there uh, in Lystra. And so God is doing some amazing things through this young man, enough so where the church, it says the church, the brothers spoke highly of him and Paul notices him. He, he, he catches Paul's attention. 
And Paul's like, hey, this is a young man that I want to bring alongside of me. This is a young man that I want to invest in. This is a young man that I want to disciple. Well, there's a reason why Timothy was the young man that he was. Grandmothers, mothers in the house, don't ever think for a second that you don't make a difference. Because Timothy was the man of faith that he was, not because of his faithful father. It says his father was a Greek. That means that it implies that his father was a Gentile. He was not a believer at this time. But it says his mother was a believer. And if you read, I'll share with this here in just a second, but if you read in the book of 2 Timothy, as Paul's writing to Timothy, he not just mentions Timothy's mother as a faithful believer, but he mentions also his grandmother as a faithful believer who poured into Timothy's life and laid a spiritual foundation in that young man's life that made a difference to where he was walking with the Lord at a very young age, and he was doing so because of the investment that his family made, his mother and his grandmother made in his life. Now, I want to say this on the front end. We know Timothy's father was not a believer. He probably was a very bad influence on Timothy if he was still involved in any type of pagan Gentile Greek culture. He was all swept up into all of the the terrible pagan things that we've talked about extensively in this study. And so you can imagine that his mother is a faithful woman, a believer, and she's got, there's some division in the home. And thank God that Timothy's mother had more of an influence over him than his father did. Now, we know God's design for the home is that the spiritual leader of the home is supposed to be the father, the husband, the man of the home. That's God's perfect and purposeful design for discipleship in the home, in the family, okay? But let's just be honest for just a second, especially right now in 2019. Is that the norm? It's not anymore, is it? That's why as the church, you know, we can't always just talk about traditional families in the way that we used to assume that everybody just came from a two-parent household with the traditional family model where, you know, the father was the spiritual leader of the home. We don't, we don't see that. As a matter of fact, that's, the, that's become the exception in our culture now. And so many times, ladies, mothers, grandmothers, the, the responsibility for spiritual uh, investment and discipleship has now fallen on you. Many of you in this room right now, you're probably a single mom trying to do it, as you've said, all by yourself, which we know you're not truly all by yourself because who's with you? The Lord is with you, and He is enough. Don't forget that. But yet still, it's hard, isn't it? It's difficult. I understand as a single mother, maybe you've, you're coming from a, a home where you're the spiritual leader of the household and, and the husband has or the father has no interest in being the spiritual leader. Maybe he's absent or maybe he's just passive or maybe he's just lost as a goose or whatever it may be. But you may be in that situation right now and we understand that, yes, God has a design for the family. Fathers, you are called to be the spiritual leaders of your family. But that's, not, that's in a perfect world, and we don't live in a perfect world. And so sometimes mothers, grandmothers, you're called grandfathers. Sometimes you're called to step in and to be that spiritual mentor and that spiritual leader for your children or your grandchildren in your family. Please don't miss that. I was reading something from uh, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization that really invests in men. They believe that you know if we can reach the men of this world and of this culture, that families will get turned around, whole communities will get turned around. I believe that wholeheartedly. This is coming from one of their research uh, 
some statistics from some of their research. Listen to this. This is, this is staggering. It says that if there's no dad involved in a child's life or there's, they don't have any spiritual leadership or um, discipleship from a father, it says that one in 50 children will become a regular worshiper of the Lord. One in 50, okay? However, for those children that grow up in a home where the father is the spiritual leader of the family and he's setting the tone and setting the spiritual temperature for his family and he's, he's the one out front leading his family, listen to how the, the stats change. All of a sudden, 7 out of 10, 70% of children that are raised in that context will become a regular worshiper of the Lord. Think about that. I don't know, I don't know how many percentage that, uh, increase that is, but it's a lot. It also raises this question, and this is something philosophically that you know, we have to wrestle with and talk about sometimes. Sometimes as pastors and preachers, we say, you know what? we got to reach the children, and then we might what? Reach the family. And I'm not opposed to that. I think that you can see that happen in work so many times. But do you know if you reach the children, only still a small percentage of parents ever really come to faith in Christ? And then this is what statistics show. But do you know what? If you reach the father, if you can reach the man, do you know that over 90% of everybody else in that family will eventually come to faith in Jesus Christ? Sounds like to me from a philosophical perspective, who do we need to be reaching? We need to be reaching men. And I'm calling us men out today to say, what are we doing about it? And I'm, and I'm starting with myself. So that's just something on a side note that we need to consider. But listen to what Paul says about Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. I remember you, Timothy, in my prayers as I remember your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And this is what he says. I am reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, of faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois. I had a grandmother named Lois, by the way. Pretty cool. And your mother Eunice, and I'm now sure, dwells in you as well. So Paul knew where Timothy's faith came from. He had a solid foundation that was given to him by his mother and his grandmother. And here's something I want to point out about these two faithful ladies. They didn't make excuses. They could have very easily said, you know what? Timothy's father is disconnected. He's detached. He's lost. He's, he's walking in this pagan lifestyle. And so you know what? That's his responsibility. That's not my responsibility. Well, you know what? They stepped in. They said, you know what? I'm not going to make excuses for Timothy's father anymore. We're going to take ownership, and we're going to be the ones who are responsible to invest in our children's life and into their faith. They took ownership of the most precious privilege that any parent could ever have, which is the spiritual investment in your children. Do you hear me? Parents, there's nothing greater, no greater privilege than you've been given than to teach your children about the Lord Jesus Christ, period. And so Paul... Notice Timothy, and so basically this is where I want to kind of bring this point to a head because I know I need to wrap up, but it's simply this. Paul said, okay, here's a young man. He's been given a good spiritual firm foundation, but here's the reality. There's probably only a limit to a place that his mother and his grandfather and grandmother could take him. There was probably, they could probably take him all the way up into a point, and then maybe they didn't know where else to take a young man, spiritually speaking. And so that's where we as a church, we need to understand that there are people, yes, God calls the, the father to be the leader. God calls the family to be the, the primary um, disciple maker of the children. But when we see families that are either struggling in that area or maybe there's an absence of spiritual leadership in the family, then it is at that point in time when the church is responsible to come alongside the children, and that's where we step in. 
And I think that's what Paul was doing. Paul was saying, you know what? They've brought Timothy up into this point, but I think I can take him a little bit deeper. I think I can train him a little bit more. I think I can bring him a little bit further along than his mother and his grandmother have taken them. So there you see this beautiful partnership between the family and the what? And the church. And that should be where we are as a church, is that we do not take the place of the family. The church should never take the place of the family, but when the family has limitations or there's an absence of leadership, we are called to step in and come alongside the family to make an investment in the next generation. And then finally, fruitful discipleship is the result of being sensitive to the Holy Spirit and joining God where He is already at work. I love this passage because Paul and T- now he has Timothy. He also has Luke with him because if you, I don't know if many of you caught this, but look at what it says in, let's see, verse 10. So Luke is writing in the third person. Luke is writing the book of Acts. And he's writing about Paul and Silas and Timothy, but look at what it says in verse 10. All of a sudden, He uses first-person plural. He says, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. Well, all of a sudden, if you don't catch that, at that point in the story, Luke is now with Paul, and he's with Silas, and he's with Timothy. So now Paul has with him Silas, Luke, and Timothy, and they're about to go continue to minister to the gospel. And they had their own plans. They had their own path ahead of him. They had their own strategy. And you know what it says? The Holy Spirit said, I'm not going to let you go where you want to go. Isn't that how God works all the time? Sometimes we have our own plans. Sometimes we have our own strategy. Sometimes we think we know where we're supposed to go next. But here's the thing. Paul was being sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit of God to where he was prevented from going to this place in Bithynia. But here's the thing. The people in Bithynia, it's not that they didn't need the gospel too. They needed the gospel. But here's the idea. God was already at work in Macedonia. He gave Paul this vision. He said, hey, there's a man in Macedonia who's praying, and he's saying, please come and help us. We need your help. And so God did not allow them to continue to go to Bithynia. He says, no, I have a greater work for you to go to Macedonia because that is where God was already at work. Let me tell you something. One of the greatest lessons I ever learned from Henry Blackaby, experiencing God. How many of you have ever done that Bible study before? Powerful Bible study. I recommend it for anybody. One of the things that I will always remember from that study He says, you discover where God is already at work, and you do what? You join him. Guys, if Christians and pastors and churches would just lead and live by that rule alone, I think we would see radically different results in our ministry. But if we're not taking time to be sensitive, to pray, to seek God, I'm going to tell you something. There's a group of prayer warriors that meet up here every Monday afternoon and every Tuesday night. And y'all, it's a very small group represented in our church. And that doesn't mean that none of the rest of you pray. I'm not saying that. But they're committed to coming together and to seek God and to be still and to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And I'm so forever grateful for that group because I know that if if God's going to reveal where he is at work to anybody, guess what? He's going to reveal it to that group because they're taking the time to listen. And that's what God is calling you and me to do. Sometimes we get ahead, sometimes we run ahead of God, whatever it may be. But as I call the worship team up, I want to just close on this choir worship team. You guys come on back up. As a Christian, 
And as a church, here's the thing you need to remember. Look, it's very rare that we have to make decisions between that which is good and bad. Are those decisions usually hard or easy? Those are easy, right? I mean, we know that which is good from that which is bad. I mean, usually we don't even need the Holy Spirit to know that. Even a lost person can recognize that which is good and bad. You know what is the biggest challenge as a Christian and as a church is that many times God is calling us to have discernment that between that which is good and that which is best. There's a big difference. See, Paul and Barnabas and his crew, they could have gone to Bithynia. That would have been a good thing. They need the gospel too. But the Holy Spirit of God says, no, I'm not going to let you go there because that's not the best. That's not my will for you right now because I have something better going on in Macedonia and I'm already at work there. So when you get there, guess what? Your work is going to be successful because I'm already working there. And guys, as Christians and as church leaders, that's what we should want more than anything else. As we go, I just want to close with this simple application. You ready? Look, guys, Paul, he he was a great man of God, there's no doubt. But he's just a man. But he made a commitment. And he invested in people. And so as we go, I want to ask you these two questions. Number one, where is God working in your life? Now, you may not be able to answer that question until, you be, until you're still long enough to listen, until you stop long enough to observe. Because if you're like me, we get to run in so many different directions and we get so distracted that we can't even slow down enough sometimes to see what God is doing around us. But the question is this, where is God working in your life? Pray that he will show that to you and then do what? You join him there. And may we join the Lord where he is at work in our individual lives and as a church family here at Christ Church. And let's see what God can do. All the great reward that is waiting for us, for those of us who are willing to be intentional to make disciples and to fulfill the great commission for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with us as we pray? We're going to sing one more song before we go. If you're here today and you need to talk or pray or want to talk about membership at Christ Church or maybe you just want to know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we're always here. I'm here. We've got ushers here that you can grab, you can talk to. And uh, please don't hesitate to do that today. Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us the privilege to partner with you in ministry and to join you where you are already at work. Help us to slow down and be still so that we may know where you are working, Lord. In Jesus' name we do pray. And all God's people said.